Episode 100 is a retrospective on the greatest ever blues harmonica player, Marion Walter Jacobs, a.k.a. Little Walter. In this extended episode, I'm joined by a panel of experts in Scott Dirks, Kim Field and Dennis Grunling. Little Walter was born in 1930, probably, and started playing harmonica age 8. He was busking on the streets of New Orleans by age 12, spent some time in Helena before heading north to Chicago to make his indelible mark on blues and the harmonica. Little Walter teamed up with Muddy Waters and Jimmy Rogers and cut some classic blues recordings before he went out under his own name after he was launched into superstardom with his instrumental Duke in 1952. He was riding high in the charts and touring for the next few years, including another number one with My Babe, while still also recording with Muddy Waters. The arrival of rhythm and blues started to replace the blues as the popular music of the day, which saw Little Walter start to go down slow but he still made some great recordings and completed two tours of Europe. He was then taken far too young at the age of 37 as a result of an injury sustained in a street fight, but he left behind numerous masterpieces in the blues harmonica genre that have influenced pretty much every player since. This podcast is sponsored by Zydel Harmonicas. Visit the oldest harmonica factory in the world at www.zydel1847.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Zydel Harmonicas. Hello, Scott Dirks, Kim Field, and Dennis Gruning, and welcome to the 100th podcast. Hello. Hey. Hello, great to be here. Welcome all, and thanks so much for joining today. We're going to talk about uh, the great little Walter today. So um, we got you three panel of experts to do that. So I'll just go through uh, your credentials for uh, why you've joined. So first, start with you, Scott. So uh, Scott Dirks, you are a co-author of the uh, Blues of the Feeling Little Walter story, along with um, Tony Glover and Ward Gaines. So um, tell us about how you got this, uh, this book together and going. My involvement with with the book started really in 1991. I've been a Little Walter fan since I I first heard a Muddy Waters record, which would be probably in the late 70s. Around 1991, I met a harmonica player named Iomat Rasson. He was a guy who lived on the south side of Chicago. He grew up in, in the neighborhood uh, where Jimmy Rogers had lived, and he knew some of, of the people who had known Jimmy Rogers and through him Little Walter, and, and he was a huge Little Walter fan and a harmonica player himself. By the way, I should mention that when I met him around 1990, he had been working on a book about Little Walter for about 10 years. So he had interviewed a bunch of people, and he had done a bunch of research already, and I thought that he was going to um, do this, you know, he was going to end up being the author of the Little Walter book. Unfortunately, he was never able to get all of his research together into any kind of usable form. He died a couple of years ago, and unfortunately, all of his research uh, kind of disappeared after that. But anyway, in the course of his research, he'd found that Little Walter was buried in an unmarked grave. So, Iamat had discovered that, that little Walter was buried in an unmarked grave, so we decided that we would do something about that. 
So we put a, a marker on Little Walter's grave in 1991, and we sent out some press releases to let Little Walter fans know about it. And through that, Tony Glover contacted me. Tony had it was kind of famous. He had been in a, in a group called Kerner, Ray, and Glover back in the uh, early 60s that, that uh, made several albums. And Tony wrote what, as far as I know, is the first blues harmonica instructional book that was called Blues Harp in 1965. So Tony contacted me when he found out about that, that we're doing this book. He says, oh, wow, you know, I would, I'm would i in the middle of making a Little Walter discography. He wanted to just catalog everything Little Walter had ever recorded. So we started talking about that. By the way, Tony lived in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is a couple hours by plane from here. So we had never spoken in person, but via email, we sort of started putting our heads together, you know, about Little Walter history and so on. He eventually started writing a book with another guy, Ward Gaines, who he had been in touch with separately. Once we'd made contact, Tony and I had made contact, he asked me if I would be involved, if I'd be interested in being involved in the book. And I was a little bit reluctant because I'm not really a writer. I don't didn't have any experience, you know, as a professional writer or anything like that, although I'd written a few things for blues magazines and so on. But eventually, you know, they persuaded me to to get involved. So Ward, Tony, and I, around I guess 1995 or so, decided to get serious about writing this book. So at that point, we all just started gathering information, doing interviews, you know, talking to people and, and really trying to, to put it all together. We worked for from about 1995 till about 2001 on this book, really as a labor of love. We didn't know if we'd ever get a publisher. We were prepared, yeah. actually, just to publish it online, just put it up as a website or something. But... Tony, because of his, he'd been a published author already through his blues harp book, and he, I think he did a couple of other blues harmonica instructional books after that one. Um, he had some connections in the in the publishing biz, and uh, he eventually got us in touch with Peter Goralnik, who's a, a pretty well-known music writer in the U.S., and he knew Peter Goralnik, and Peter Goralnik suggested that we submit samples of, of our proposed book to a couple of publishers, and we got an offer right away to publish it. So then we got really serious about like, you know, boy, this is real now, we have to make it into a book. Yeah, and it's a fantastic book. I read it some years ago, and and I just read it just before uh, this podcast interview to, uh, to brush up, and uh, I loved every second of it, apart from the sort of sad bit at the end, which we'll get to. But uh, uh, fantastic research and all the people and the information you got of him, it's incredible. You know, I mean, you know, how did you get all that together? Um, well, thank you, first of all. Part of my motivation is that Ward is on the East Coast. I think he's in uh, Maryland, and Tony is in St. Paul, Minnesota. Neither of those guys really had any experience or, or connections in Chicago. Because I'd been a little Walter fan and a harmonica player for a while by that time, I, I had just sought out some of the guys who had played with little Walter, just really for my own curiosity. I was, I sought out guys like Lewis and David Myers, the, the two brothers who'd been in little Walter's um, first band that he had after he made his, his first recordings for chess or checker. You know, I just, I, I had been 
asking all these questions just for my own curiosity. What did little Walter do in the studio? What kind of equipment did he use? What kind of a guy is was he? And, and just stuff like that. So I had this sort of, you know, I, like one degree away from him connection that my other two co-authors didn't have. So once I had a reason to, I got really serious about just nailing these guys down, recording some interviews, recording some some firsthand recollections and stuff. And that's where a lot of it came from. The guys in Chicago who had known Little Walter. And then there were a few people who, well, I should say either Ward or Tony had some connection with, and they were able to ask. Like, I, I believe that it was Ward who, eh, maybe it was Tony, I can't remember now, but one of those guys knew Charlie Musselwhite, and Charlie had had some experiences with little Walter when, you know, when he was in Chicago. And, and of course, there was a lot of uh, stuff that was already out there. There was a really great interview with Lewis Myers in uh, Blues Unlimited magazine that supplied lots of good info. So there was there was a fair amount of, of published stuff out there that we were able to draw from. And then we just filled in the rest by really buckling down and trying to find the people who knew the answers to these questions. And and over time, I'd become kind of friendly with guys like, like I said, the Myers brothers, um, Jimmy Lee Robinson, a few other people who had played in Walter's band. So I was really able to grill them over time to kind of dig a little bit deeper and, and get the story. And I think, you know, just the combination of, of our research and then the research that had already been done, you know, that, that ended up being the book. So thanks, Scott. We'll bring in our second guest now, Kim Field. So, Kim, you're a musician, obviously a harmonica player, and also a writer yourself. You've written a Another fantastic book on, on harmonica, which I've read, which is the Harmonicas, Harps and Heavy Breathers, uh, which which covers lots of different players, including Little Walter. You've got a section on and some great um, some comments from Jimmy Rogers and, and others. And you've also recently co-written The Blues Dream of Billy Boy Arnold, and that, that was released uh, in the last year or so, wasn't it? And um, of course, Billy Boy, you know, sort of knew Little Walter, right? He was around at the same time. So you've got that, that connection there too. Yeah, that's right. I was a 17-year-old trumpet player when I caught a James Cotton show in 1968, and I went out and bought a Sea Marine band the next day. So I've been uh, banging away at, at that thing for uh, ever since. I wrote that book on the history of the harmonica, Harmonica's Harps and Heavy Breathers. It just I was really, really interested in uh, putting myself out there as a writer as well as a musician, and I needed a topic that I could stick with through the lifetime of a of creating a book, and obviously the harmonica was that topic. I wanted. I met Billy Boy Arnold at a Mark Hummel show. He described his early meetings with as a twelve year old with John Lee, Sonny Boy Williamson, which was quite remarkable, and that put the idea in my head of there's this guy who's basically lived the entire history of Chicago blues. He was born. Billy Boy was born in Chicago in '35 had already been on the scene for about 10 years before Muddy Waters, you know, really hit it big. So uh, he also was in contact with the early generation of Chicago blues players like Big Bill Brunzi and, and John Lee Williamson and people like that. And he was a harmonica player. More to the point, he was a very intelligent, Billy Boy is a very intelligent person who has total recall of events from like 70 years ago. It's just remarkable. So uh, uh, I 
talked him up at a Mark Hummel show about coming out to Chicago to visit him. And uh, I did that. And Dick Sherman set up a lunch with Billy Boy. And uh, somehow I, I convinced Billy Boy to let me help him tell his story. So, uh, and in a big way, it's, it's, it's the story of Chicago blues harmonica, including little Walter too, because I've never met anyone who is more passionate about blues harmonica than Billy boy. And so he took a very keen interest in everybody on the scene, most especially little Walter, whom he considered to be, you know, the top player, uh, you know, at the time. So uh, it was very interesting to learn more about Little Walter in the course of doing that book with Billy Boy. So, and then our third guest today is Dennis Gruenling. You might um, remember him. He was on the Lost Podcast. Uh, long time no speak, Dennis. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks, man. <laughs> so um, you are the man we understand to do the last tribute album to Little Walter. Have you heard any other since? <laughs> I haven't. And you know, I, and I mentioned it in, in, in the last podcast that I was so, I, I, I'm still, when I think about it, I'm just baffled that there was really no official recorded tribute album to little walter since you know that the year that he passed away it, it, it just kind of boggled my mind so it just seemed like how has anybody else not done this since george smith right so yeah i mean i'm really proud of that project it obviously was a labor of love and, and a passion project for me but just glad i was able to do that I'm glad I was able to write the liner notes. Yes, thank you, Scott. <laughs> You're very welcome. I was glad to be able to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you even more, Kim. <laughs> I was glad to listen to it and play along. Thanks, man. Great. So enough about us. Let's talk about the uh, the subject of today. Let's talk about uh, Little Walter himself. So um, again, Scott, I won't apologize too much from drawing quite heavily from the book that you co-authored uh, for the life of Little Walter. So, so he was born um, in 1930, probably. Probably. Uh, on May the 1st <laughs> in, in Marksville, uh, Louisiana. So um, that's quite close to, to New Orleans. So yeah, so yeah, any, any mentions around his, uh, the year of his birth? Well, yeah, a little bit. When we were working on the book, Tony Glover, uh, his partner, was really into genealogy, and she was able to dig pretty deeply. And the first chapter of the book is a lot of her research about little Walter's birth. And one of the things that, that she found was that there were records that showed that little Walter's father was in prison nine months before the date that's accepted as his birth. So that suggests that he might have been born at a different time than is indicated on his, uh, uh, you know, in most biographies. In fact, there, there was no birth certificate. He never had a birth certificate. When he traveled overseas, he had to go to a, a church to get what I guess is accepted as a certificate of birth, but it, you know, it's 30 some years after his birth. But in order to get a passport, he needed this document. But uh, you know, over the course of researching the book, I think we found five different birth years that were documented. Wow. And I decided that the best thing to do is just leave it at the most commonly accepted one. But I think it's possible, maybe even likely, that he was a little bit older than than his 1930 birthday would suggest. I There's another document in the book which uh, where he signed his birth, what, in 1923, was it? So that's a date that he wrote, wasn't right. it? Right, yeah. and, and there were several others, too. Yeah, 1925, 1927, <laughs> 28. There were a bunch of different documents. Unfortunately, since there was nothing that was really contemporary, you know, contemporaneous with his birth, like 
a newspaper announcement or a, you know, an entry in a Bible or something like that that would have specifically dated his birth. It's sort of unknown, but I, I strongly suspect that he was a little, at least a little bit older. And, you know, frankly, he looked a little bit older at the time of his death. He, he you know, if you accept his 1930 birth year, he would be 38 years old or 37 years old, I should say. Yeah. He looked like he might be at least five or 10 years older. So. Yeah, well, there's reasons for that, wasn't there? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's important because, you know, when he started playing his first recording, you know, when he started recording with Chess, etc., you know, how old he was is quite in, quite interesting. But we'll, we'll get on to that. But um, I think um, what's documented is he started playing harmonica at the age of eight. Somewhere in there, yeah. And so obviously young. And uh, and I believe he was playing the the regimental band harp rather than the Marine Band initially. That was a kind of cheaper version of the Marine Band at the time, was it? You know, I honestly don't know. I don't know. I can't remember, actually, if, the, if we documented that in the book. The one thing I do remember is that his sister Lillian said that he wanted to be a saxophone player, but the family could not af- afford a saxophone. So that's why he ended up with a harmonica. The Mississippi saxophone, as they sometimes call it. Uh, and the first harmonica player he probably heard was Lonnie Glosson. He was a kind of white hillbilly right. player who was on, the, was on the radio, yes. So he was kind of hearing this kind of hillbilly harmonica to begin with. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know how much of that got completely absorbed into his own style, but Lonnie Glosson was everywhere at that time. He had his own brand of harmonicas, and I think they advertised you could buy them on, the, uh, on his radio broadcasts and Kim might know more about this than I do, but but he was a very famous, maybe the most famous harmonica player outside of the realm of like you know classical music, Larry Adler and people like that. Yeah, uh, Lonnie and Wayne Rainey were two of the like really early prominent country western harmonica players. They both played. In fact, they both played together on some of the uh, Delmore Brothers records, and they were uh, very popular at the time. That sure ain't no fox. No, sir. It's a cat. My, what claws. Sure is a big cat. But then Lonnie and Wayne, they, they signed up with one of those uh, Texas border radio stations, those 50,000-watt stations just across the border. So they were on, like, I think they were on 300 different stations around the United States at their peak. So they, they sold like five million harmonicas over the airwaves, and they they you, you just you couldn't not run into Lonnie Glosson in those days. So it's not surprising that Little Walter did too. You know, Honey Boy Edwards also said Little Walter, as you mentioned, Neil is is from Louisiana. He went to New Orleans and played there very very early on when he was uh, before he ever came north and. Honeyboy Edwards said that his harmonica playing had what he called a Cajunly sound, and I by that I think he meant it at that time it had sort of an accordion sound, and I, that might be you know just the way he used chords or or whatever, you know he he was influenced by stuff other than blues I think at the very beginning yeah I, that that's a part of Walter's story that I'm you know I, I guess we'll never really know but i think it's it's a really fascinating one like what he had so many formative experiences uh in louisiana before he went to uh chicago or even became like even west helena you know and the blue scene right. there and it's really fascinating to consider what it must have been like for uh, a very hip young guy like walter to spend time in new orleans 
at, when he was really just forming his style and the, and the influence that that must have had on him. And then, you know, per your earlier comments, Scott, that he even at the, you know, as a boy, he wanted to be a saxophone player. I mean, that's kind of the hallmark legacy of Little Walter is, is putting a horn-like kind of concept behind the harmonica. Exactly. Yep. Yep. By the way, uh, speaking of New Orleans, Walter's older sister Lillian told me that she used to have a photograph of little Walter when he was leaving home for the first time. She said he was 12 years old and he was hitchhiking to New Orleans. And she said she had a picture of him standing on the side of the road with his thumb out, hitchhiking to New Orleans. And she said she did not know whatever happened to that picture. But that's a picture I would have liked to have seen. Wow. Yeah. I did hear, again, through his sister Lillian, that he played a lot on the streets there. Uh, there was a, someone who he stayed with, who was sort of a distant relative, who he stayed with in New Orleans, this woman named Waver Humphreys. And she's mentioned in the book a little bit. And I think it was she who said that he used to stand outside this club and listen to the players inside and then try and imitate it on the harmonica standing outside the club. So he's like playing along with the band inside, but he's outside with his harmonica. So his first influence, I think very well documented, person he really tried to imitate was the, the first um, Sonny Boy, John Lee Williamson. And that was, uh, you know, that was a huge draw. So Dennis, uh, you tell us something about um, John Lee Williamson's style and uh, maybe, uh, you know, little Walter, you know, copying that in his early days. Well, anybody who has studied blues harmonica, in particular Chicago blues harmonica, can very easily tell that early on on, his, on Walter's early recordings was pretty much mimicking John Lee's style. And, and you know, John Lee at that time was a superstar in the blues world anyway. But you could easily tell that he looked up to his style. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not as much of a researcher slash historian as Scott and Kim, but you can tell just from a harmonica player's perspective that he really listened to and studied John Lee Williamson. And, you know, and after the, the first year or two of uh, a couple of years, I would say, I guess, of of listening to his first recordings, first couple of years of recordings, you can really hear him kind of start to grow a bit with his own voice but it's clear i think it's pretty unanimous by anybody who knows what they're talking about with harmonica technique and styles that he, he loved what sunny boy one was doing and he clearly kind of based a good portion of his style off of that so as you say, Sonny Boy was a, a massive star then. He was as everywhere on the radio. But he was also the sort of first one to really sort of use the harmonic as a lead instrument. Yeah, and that was a, you know, he was really pushing it then in that blues genre then. Sure, of course. Yeah, I mean, he was, he's the granddaddy of them all, really. Uh, so Kim, anything to add on Sonny Boy 1? Yeah, well, it was interesting. You know, there is Billy Boy um, Arnold was a John Lee Williamson fanatic by the time he was about 10 or 11 years old. He's, he had a paper route and he spent all his extra money on John Lee Williamson records. Then he tracked John Lee Williamson down and met him, visited John Lee at his apartment 
on two different occasions and even got some harmonica tips. And so there's no bigger fan or idolizer of John Lee Williamson than Billy Boy Arnold. Billy Boy told me in the course of the interviews for the book that the first time he met Walter, well, the second time he met Walter, first time he met him on the street, second time he went into a club to see Walter play, and he walked by the bandstand and Lewis Myers muttered to little Walter, there's one of those so-called harp players who just went by. So little Walter had Billy Boy come up and sit in on the set to check him out. And then they sat at a table and chatted afterwards. And Billy Boy said that Walter told him that Sonny Boy was the absolute best. John Lee Williamson was the guy. I think Billy Boy also mentioned that that was probably the only time he ever heard Walter speak admiringly of another harp player. I think he was interviewed by Val Wilmer during one of his trips to England. And when asked about his favorite harmonica players or who influenced him, he only mentioned John Lee Williamson. He didn't mention anyone else. So we mentioned that he went on to Helena in Arkansas, and that's where he saw Sonny Boy 2, saw Rice Miller, who had his uh, King Biscuit Time uh, radio show. So he was, he was big around then. Did he start then uh, hanging around with Sonny Boy too, and um, sort of um, getting, you know, listening to him, picking up from him? It's it's hard to say. I mean, he did spend some time around him, but of the harmonica players who are out there, I hear less of Sonny Boy Number Two and Little Walter than sometimes he gets credit for. I don't hear a whole lot of Sonny Boy Two and Little Walter's style. I think Walter was in some way reacting to the older style that I think he thought that Sonny Boy 2 was playing. I think little Walter was like, yeah, yeah, that's that's old stuff. I'm going to do the new stuff, you know? Yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a little bit. I, I've speculated at times that, uh, you know, and we're kind of fast-forwarding here a little bit, but towards the late 50s, um, little Walter started making some recordings without the amplified harp, and I think it's possible that that might have been a reaction to Sonny Boy, because some of that stuff does have a little bit of a Sonny Boy feel to it, but not a lot, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. You don't hear his style in the, in, in Little Walter's playing, for sure. But, I mean, I think it does say in, in the book that he did sort of um, kind of fill in for him on his radio show when he wasn't available. So I think he was definitely hanging around with uh, Rice Miller a little. Yeah, yeah, he was part of that scene, yeah. for sure, yeah. I think, you know, there's all this apocryphal talk about who influenced who and who took lessons from who. And I think Dennis and Scott are on the right track. The, the proof is in the recordings. And, and Scott is right. I really don't hear Rice Miller influences in, in Walter's playing, you know, anywhere near the extent you do uh, John Lee Williamson and so forth. I think uh, it might have been the, <laughs> the other way around in terms of who was influencing whom. But I, I just don't hear that in, in Walter's playing. It's possible that, that Sonny Boy influenced him more in like how to, you know, hobo and, you know, get a free meal, that kind of thing. Well, and how to be a professional. I mean, Sonny, Sonny Boy uh, gigged all over the area and he had a, a daily radio show. I mean, he was, uh, he was quite the celebrity. Sure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and then finally, just just name dropping harmonica. So he sort of did meet Big Walter as well, Walter Horton. He was sort of thirteen years old. So all these three guys were were older than Little Walter. So I guess they were, you know, they were people he was certainly listening to, and uh, you know, he had some contact with. Then he started moving around. You mentioned Honey Boy Edwards earlier on, I think, Kim, and uh, he, he was moving around playing with him. Before then, uh, he sort of made his big move north to to 
moved to Chicago and then started playing on Maxwell Street. And that's when uh, things started taking off for him. Yes, that is definitely when things started taking off. I found a an ad in the Chicago Defender from 1946 that I that advertises Little Walter as the Wonder Harmonica King. <laughs> That's the first advertisement that I've been able to find for anything that Little Walter did. It, it's not that important, except that it confirms that he was in Chicago that early in 1946. I think there's some speculation that he had come up some, you know, in 47 or 48, but. Yeah. Uh, he was definitely gigging in Chicago in 1946. The place that he did this gig, it was called the Purple Cat Lounge, and it was on the west side, and Little Walter took over the gig there. He had a regular you know, weekly thing there, and he took over for John Lee Williamson, who had moved on from there. In the book, there's a story, I believe it was told by Johnny Williams, maybe. He was a, uh, a guitar player in Chicago. But anyway, he said that little Walter went to the Purple Cat when Sonny Boy was playing there and persuaded them to let him sit in. And that afterwards, Sonny Boy told Walter, you play too fast. <laughs> Billy Boy Arnold, when he was telling me about that conversation he had at the table in the club with Walter for the first time, he, he also mentioned that Walter told him that John Lee had told him that that same thing, that he played too fast. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly talk in the book about him, you know, his time not being good. Obviously, he's young at this stage, right? But it's interesting to see the great little Walter, you know, probably didn't have great time when he was younger, so there's hope for us all yet. If I can jump in on that for one second, you know, because I'm the guy who wrote the book, I usually am the guy who's the big defender of little Walter. I don't think everything he did is perfect. I, I think he did some, you know what I mean? I'm not going to defend everything he ever did, but I'm going to defend that. I don't hear anything on any of his recordings from the first to the last that would indicate his timing was any worse than Muddy Waters or Jimmy Rogers or Howlin' Wolf or Sonny Boy. I think that came from Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers is the only person that I've seen say that little Walter had bad time. Hmm. Don't know why, but, you know, as, as Kim just said, listen to the records. It's His timing is is solid, or as solid as anyone else was at that time. Well, so. I, I think the time he started recording with, with Muddy and Jimmy, I, I think he definitely sorted his time out by then. I'm th I was thinking maybe when he was younger, but yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, that's sort of a hallmark of, of guys who play solo, too, you know, who, who, who don't have an, uh, an accompanist with them. Right. They follow their own time. They do the John Lee Hooker thing or, or Lightning Hopkins, you know, they change when they feel it's time to change. But once you start playing with people, and I think once little Walter started playing with people, he probably sorted that out pretty quickly. I think I, you can hear it, I think, on his earliest recordings, too. I mean, and he's playing fairly rhythmically on his earliest recordings, and his timing is pretty dang good. And when you also consider his influences, you know, he, again, he's listening to pop music and he's listening to swing and Louis Jordan and all those horn players. And so uh, it's not like he's only coming out of the, the blues tradition. Right. So I, right. it's funny how, you know, there's that one comment by Jimmy Rogers and it becomes sort of a gospel uh, thing that's accepted, you know, as being completely true. And uh, I'm, I'm with uh, Scott and Dennis on this one. I, I, it's hard to imagine that 
that was a huge project for Walter in, in terms of perfecting his time. So right, right. Well, and I think it's evident on his first recording. So he made his first recording in 1947 in a record shop where there was a Maxwell Radio Record Co. So it's Oranel Blues, which he made with a guy called Otham Brown. So um, this is his very first recording. We've got that captured. Yes. Um, and thankfully, you know, this is just like a literally like a little back room, a portable recording type situation. But they put out a few records and, you know, of the guys who were out playing on Maxwell Street at that time. And little Walter was among them. So he, he got lucky. By the way, I should mention, too, that Floyd Jones, who was kind of a contemporary of little Walters and, you know, in Chicago on the Chicago scene, um, he was a guitar player and later a bass player. Floyd Jones claimed that he made the first recording that little Walter ever made, they went into one of those recording booths where you can make a a single recording for 50 cents. And he said, little Walter backed him on guitar on that recording before he did the Oranel record. I'd buy that for 50 cents. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned playing guitar. That's an interesting thing that a a lot of people probably know you that you played a little bit of guitar. There's there's a few photos in, but it sounds like you played quite a lot of guitar. Didn't he actually recorded quite a lot of guitar? Yeah, I at one point decided to just dig into that and and I compiled a little collection and I think there are 11 recordings, 11 recordings that I've been able to find where he's on guitar, several of them where he's backing himself. There's a record that came out on Delmar called The Blues World of Little Walter that re- that features some of his things where he was recording and and you know playing guitar and and uh singing on record and then he he backed muddy waters jimmy rogers and a piano player named eddie ware who was jimmy rogers piano player and his guitar playing was solid you know i, I think it's kind of obvious if, you, if you're a guitar player you're going, yeah this is a guy who doesn't play guitar full time all the time but for blues guitar playing, it's totally solid. He was a really good guitar player, and someone who saw him play at the University of Chicago in the early 60s wrote a review that said that on stage he only played harmonica, but backstage he was playing guitar, and in this review they said someone is missing a huge opportunity by not recording him on guitar because he has a beautiful guitar style. Sadly, I don't think he ever made any more guitar recordings after the 50s. Yeah, Billy Boyd told me that, again, it was one of those first times he saw Walter in the clubs. Walter did play a little guitar on the bandstand, uh, but Billy Boyd said that was the only time he ever saw Walter play on the bandstand, and Billy Boyd saw Walter hundreds of times. So, Yeah, I, and I should mention, this This reminds me of the, the famous story that uh, both Walter and Lewis told this story, so it's, it's not a legend or a myth that Walter used to out on the road when he was playing with Lewis, there were always guys who wanted to challenge him on harmonica. I can play better than you, little Walter. So Walter would invite them up. Before inviting them up, he would switch and have Lewis Myers blow harmonica, and Walter would play guitar while Lewis cut the head of the other guy. That's an expression that means he he put the other guy in his place. 
Lewis was a great harmonica player. Yeah. Well, it goes to show, right, even if he had, you know, reasonably rudimentary guitar skills, that's important, you know, even as the greatest harmonica player that, uh, that you know, to have those other, uh, other knowledge of other instruments. So yeah, yeah. Going back to that recording, 1947, so as I say, he recorded that Oranel Blues, but then he also recorded I Just Keep Loving Her during that take, in, in which he sings, right? Because I think, you know, his association when he's playing with Muddy Waters that he didn't start singing until he went solo, but obviously he's singing right then, you know, on his first recording, yeah. Yeah, I think he wanted to have his own career rather than backing someone else, but it just didn't really happen for him. Maybe it didn't happen because he was too closely you know, aligned with, with John Lee Williamson. And maybe there's like, Oh, we already have one of those. So I I had a conversation with Jerry Portnoy once about, about John Lee Williamson. And he was saying that he thought that all Chicago blues harmonica goes back to the later John Lee Williamson, the post-war John Lee Williamson. It it can, it all, you know, you can follow it all back there. And I kind of disagreed with that because one of the things that Walter did that John Lee Williamson didn't do as much is syncopate, his rhythms. John Lee Williamson specialized. I mean, listen to little Walter's first recording. That's kind of the way John Lee Williamson played, but it was very rhythmic. It was very much, you sort of play the melody. He didn't really go off the, off the sheet music so much. Uh, John Lee Williamson, Williamson, I should say little Walter almost immediately was like improvising stuff that John Lee Williamson just never did. Uh, from his very first recordings, he was playing things that that were sort of outside the John Lee Williamson thing, and that's where the Little Walter style, I think, came from. Is the stuff where you know where he's like, okay, I'm going to move on from John Lee Williamson now. Yeah, and I think that's a good indication of why we all probably consider him to be the the greatest blues harmonica player, right? Because particularly back then, the guys kind of had the stock riffs right. You could definitely tell, you know, they played kind of repeated riffs quite a lot, but exactly. he didn't do that, right? Yeah. And, you know, almost everybody else playing harmonica in Chicago at that time, we're talking about in the 40s, they played like John Lee Williamson. That was the style. It's like if you played blues harmonica, that's kind of the way that that it was done then. So there were lots of guys who who imitated John Lee Williamson at some level or another. And, you know, little Walter started there. But but once he moved on, I I think that he really wanted to do something. I, I You know, the question that is always in the back of my mind whenever I think about little, what drove him? What drove him? What was the guiding principle that made him just continually strive for something new? And I think it's that he just wanted to do something no one else was doing. I, I once heard a story, uh, an anecdote, little Willie Anderson was kind of a little Walter uh, disciple in the fifties and sixties. And I heard a story that little Willie Anderson would go see little Walter and little Walter would just try and mess with little Willie's mind and he would play some crazy lick and then look right at Willie Anderson who's standing in front of the stage and say try and cop that So we mentioned that he probably, you know, he might have wanted to be a saxophone player, but couldn't afford to get a harmonica. He clearly listened to a lot of jazz, a lot of harmonica. So, you know, Dennis, right, we talked on our last uh, podcast about, uh, you know, y- you know, you're playing low-tuned harmonicas to try and get that sort of baritone sax sound. So right. I think he was definitely maybe the first person to try and imitate the, the saxophone and the harmonica, Dennis. What, what, what do you think about, uh, you know, his playing with respect to that? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I agree with everything Scott's saying about this. I also think there are other things at play. I mean, I'm sure he did want to do other things that other players weren't doing. He was also that guy, you know. I mean, he had that musical gift 
to blend different things that he was drawn to. Of course, the, one of the big things being John Lee Williamson, but we also know he talked about and listened to a lot of you know jazz and R&B sax players. And what I hear when his style kind of got a little further away from just mimicking John Lee is he's incorporating probably everything else that he loved about music into his playing. You know, so would it be the same if John Lee wasn't around for him to first mimic and learn from? I would bet not so. Would it still be amazing? I'm probably sure it would be because that's just who Walter was musically. That's just part of him. But it certainly would have been different, I think, without him learning from the style of John Lee. So he definitely added something different, but he added to that foundation for sure that we can, you know, we can all hear that when we study what he did. I think Walter really wanted to swing. Yeah. Billy Boyd mentioned that Walter had told folks that he he kind of got frustrated playing with Muddy because uh, and they kept playing that same old slow shit. Yeah. And uh, he and you can hear in like uh, just keep loving her, you know, like even in the earliest recordings, Walter's playing really pops. It jumps. It swings. You know, he's got a really beautiful swing feel to to his approach to music, and I think that's what he unleashed. You know, when uh, he did juke and broke things wide open. Yeah. If I can jump in on that a little bit, remember, too, that, you know, Walter was playing with Muddy. Muddy was a generation older than Walter. Right. And Dave Myers told me once that one of the reasons little Walter, you know, moved on from Muddy, even though it was a good gig, right? It's probably the best harmonica gig that ever existed. But one of the reasons he moved on is he said Muddy played too slow. <laughs> Muddy always played slow stuff. And, you know, that's true. That's part of Muddy's thing. That's part of what made Muddy great. But little Walter didn't want to play slow. Right. He played fast. Like John Lee Williamson said, he played fast, you know. Like Billy Boy mentioned uh, to me that, you know, even like in terms of the different different clubs that were available as venues to them, that Muddy preferred, I think it was the Zanzibar, where uh, Billy Boy described that as a place where people came and sat and listened to the music. Uh, whereas, you know, Walter played at Silvio's and other places, you know, where there's more of a dance crowd, you know, so that there was even a difference in terms of uh, some of the venues that they worked at. So before we get on to Little Walter leaving Muddy Waters, let's start with how he started playing with Muddy Waters in, in 1948. So he joined up with, with Muddy Waters and, and Jimmy Rogers. They they had a band they called themselves the Headcutters, as you, as you mentioned. I think Kim earlier, that's, um, you know, they kind of put the other bands in their place. Yeah, so he did some great you know his really great classic recordings with um with muddy waters and so his first recording with muddy waters not jimmy rogers was a uh, was blue baby um with sunny land slim who's a piano player and uh and then he, he became part of this this trio with uh, with muddy waters and jimmy rogers and they did some fantastic recordings some of my favorite little water recordings for sure with muddy waters They were big, right? And they were making a big splash on the, on the Chicago. And they sort of really sort of set that Chicago sound, you say, and with the, you know, the sort of that trio. That Chicago sound was really already happening. But I think that was, I guess, the beginning of that newer Chicago sound. Yeah, it was the, the post-war Chicago sound was really, you know, there had been this 
you know, we don't have to go too far down this road, but there was there had been a Chicago sound that was sort of epitomized by what a lot of people call the bluebird sound. It was right. this, you know, it was like a session band, basically, that backed up pretty much anybody. Washboard Sam, Big Bill Brunzi, John Lee Williamson, Jazz Gillum, same guys playing behind all of them. So that was sort of the bluebird sound. The sort of post-war reaction to that was these small hard-hitting trios like as you say the the head uh, cutters and i think that's sort of going in the direction that things ended mm-hmm. up but i think of that as a transitional period right there because i think the real chicago sound hit when muddy started recording with drums and a piano player mm-hmm. that's the classic sound and of course you know you add in the amplified harp here being a harp player i mean that was a huge part at least for me when i first discovered this that was just it didn't it wasn't always amplified but a big portion of it was and it really made uh, a different impact listening to the band with that another sort of milestone is that so muddy waters was recording with solo at chess and you know chess wanted him to be solo that's the sound he was sort of country blues sort of style he was playing and it wasn't until um a little bit later that he um he was allowed to record with Muddy at Chess, and the, the first song they recorded there was uh, "You're Gonna Need My Help." All right, Lil Walker. And uh, so yeah, so and then they start recording together at Chess, yeah. And um, so yeah, what about those recordings with Chess? Yeah, the the early recordings with Chess. You know, the the story goes that Muddy wanted to record with his with a full band, which is what he was gigging with. I think it's sort of interesting that that some of the, the greatest Muddy Waters recordings when he first started recording with just him and Big Crawford on bass, those those really elemental sort of low-down blues, Big Crawford was never in Muddy's band. That was never a thing that Muddy did live. That was a studio concoction. It's interesting that those records, I always sort of marvel at how great those records are considering, you know, Muddy was completely out of his element playing with a musician that he did not normally play with and he made all these great records. Then they added in Jimmy Rogers and Little Walter really started to flower then. You know, it became sort of an ensemble where all the pieces were woven together in this beautiful way, you know. Those early recordings are are part of what makes them so great for me is that you can really hear each piece individually and see how they sort of fit together and make the a, a larger thing out of these smaller pieces. Um mm. I just I just love that stuff. Well, and Muddy hit with I Can't Be Satisfied, which again was, you know, basically him with Big Crawford. You know, Leonard Chess is a record company guy, and he he hit the jackpot with that formulation. And so I think he stuck with that as long as he... Yeah, lock it in, right? Yeah, and so he was kind of resistant to Muddy's, you know, urging him to bring the band into the studio and so forth, because he he didn't want to kill the goose that laid the golden egg for him. And you can hear, well, you know, Scott, you had mentioned it's kind of like this is like the transitional period, the beginning of this stuff, the beginning of what we think of as the post-war Chicago blues sound. And earlier, pre-war or bluebird era of the Chicago sound. My bluebirds, when you find me, lay to them. I'll give them my best regard. Had Obviously, different instrumentalists in the band. You know, I mean, there was band backing up. It wasn't just a lot of it. It wasn't just solo artists. Right. But the interplay and the response 
of how everybody in this new era was different. It felt different. It played different. It was a little more interplay. There was a little more responsiveness to how everybody played together. I think that's a, an exciting part of this new sound that was being created. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and so he made recordings with Muddy, and then he also made recordings with Jimmy Rogers, some great recordings with Jimmy Rogers, such as that's a right, real classic song. Take it away, man. And he recorded his first amplified harmonica at chess with the song Country Boy. which she uh, recorded with Muddy alongside She Moves Me, which was uh, recorded in the same session. This was a kind of turning point for Little Walter, right? He, he, was, he was wanting to play Amplified. As it goes through, um, uh, as we get on to shortly, he sort of left Muddy's band, uh, and, but he carried on recording with Muddy. He was always very frustrated that he couldn't record Amplified very much at chess. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of really big frustration point for him. I, a lot of the 50s stuff with Muddy was Amplified. In, I think it was in the later 50s that they sort of handcuffed him by asking him not to play with his... You know, there's a famous session, I think it was on one of the Little Walter or the Little Walter box set that came out. There's a little interplay where Little Walter's complaining in between songs about, I can't hear me, though. He's yeah, saying yeah. That, that the other musicians can't hear him in the studio when he's playing. And that was why he wanted to use his amplifier and so that everyone could interact with each other. And he was somehow or another persuaded not to do that so he made several he started recording in the late 50s minus the the amplifier but one of the things if i can if i can go back just a little bit when i started getting into little walter much like what dennis said i the amplified sounds like wait what is this this is like something that i have not heard before and and so i really went down the rabbit hole trying to find out how to get that sound and like a lot of beginning harmonica players i thought it was you could buy a microphone or an amplifier that will make you sound like that <laughs> you know 10 years later and countless amplifiers and microphones later i realized it's really not that most of the equipment that was available when little walter was playing will give you that sound it was the way that he he used it and the way that he you know manipulated it in his playing he would play soft he would play hard he would really you know dig in and get this amplified sound I guess the point is, I you know, the, the amplifier was sort of the focus of a lot of people's interest in Little Walter. But, it, you know, as it turns out, that's not really the thing. There were people playing, you know, with amplifiers before him. It was him with an amplifier, wasn't it? With the exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. you know, a- amplification was a survival tool, right? Uh, in these loud, crowded bars in Chicago and every other major city. And, you know, uh, John Lee Williamson played, was playing Amplified before he died, too. Sure. So it was just sort of a, it was a, a sonic boost, get you your sound over in a crowded room. Right. But the thing that Walter had, Walter saw that, I think he heard the future in the amp in a different kind of a way. And it's sort of akin to what Charlie Christian realized on the guitar, you know, with the the combination of a guitar with an amplifier, the ability to sustain notes and to just create a whole different section of the sonic catalog for harmonica. I think Walter really like understood that in a, 
in, in kind of an immediate, uh, innate way. It's true that his, his core acoustic sound and technique is still totally evident in his amplified recordings, but he also really understood how the amplifier could make you different. Exactly. I couldn't agree with that more, especially that Charlie Christian uh, analogy. I mean, I've always thought the same thing. You know, not only are they great players, but they heard something that they can use as a tool to further express what they wanted to do musically. That wasn't just the instrument itself. It was other things added to the instrument to create even more exciting colors and dimensions and textures. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out, too, that, you know, the microphone and the amplifier is just to make things louder. But that's not exactly what little Walter used it for. He sort of realized that you could push this thing further than it was really intended to go and create a whole new sound that just didn't exist before. One of my favorite stories uh, in the Little Walter book is how on uh, Little Walter's first tour after leaving Muddy, he had the aces with him, Dave and Lewis Myers and Fred Bilo, and they were on tour in Texas. Uh, They were playing at some armory, and they were doing a show with Ivory Joe Hunter's band, which was a big, uh, like, 12 or 15-piece band or whatever, big horn section. And they were in a cafe across from the venue after having dropped their their equipment off. And they were in the cafe having dinner or whatever. Ivory Joe Hunter's band came into the cafe. And while they were there, somebody put Juke on the jukebox, Little Walter's recording of Juke. And Dave Myers said they sat there and laughed while the other musicians in Ivory Joe Hunter's band argued over what instrument it was that they thought they were hearing. They had literally, these are professional musicians who had literally never heard that sound before. So let's let's get on to Duke now. So, um, you know, you mentioned this song there. So released in 1952, all of the harmonica players know Duke, know it's a huge hit. But I think we should probably don't quite realise the significance of that song. Like you say, what you've just mentioned there about the sound and the other instruments couldn't really recognise that as a harmonica. But it also made Little Walter a massive star. He left Muddy Waters, band went solo. It was a huge hit. He suddenly sort of propelled to be a, a star in his own name. And suddenly harmonica was you know everyone wanted a harmonica in their band you know this yeah the the amplified sound you know where other people were really just using it to get louder matter of fact there's a, i believe snooki Pryor beat little walter mm-hmm. into the studio uh and recorded amplified before little walter did but it doesn't sound that much different from anything else that that snooki Pryor was playing that tone is just very slightly different little walter's like no 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 we can use this to create this you know, sonic palette yeah. that just isn't heard anywhere else. And I, I've seen ads, you know, Little Walter and his amazing electric harmonica. You know, it was just something that, that just didn't really exist. As a, You know, there were microphones and there were harmonicas before Little Walter's juke. But there really wasn't amplified harmonica before Little Walter started doing it, actually on Country Boy, as you said, with Muddy. But, you know, as an instrument, amplified harmonica came into being on the date that Country Boy was recorded. And Juke is just, you know, the follow-through on that. Juke, by the way, the record that we all know and love as the, the national anthem of blues harmonica, what we hear is the very first attempt at the very first take of the very first song that little Walter tried at his very first session for checker. That's it. The very first thing that came out, that's juke. 
But they were playing it on the bandstand, uh, as I understand, before they recorded it. Yeah, supposedly Muddy was using it as a, a sort of a set closer or opener. And a story, I don't know how true the story is, but supposedly one of the things that inspired little Walter to leave Muddy's band is someone came up and asked to hear that song, their theme song. Back in those days, by the way, the musicians all sat while playing back in the early 50s. At least these guys did. And somebody came up and put a quarter on Muddy's knee and a quarter on Jimmy Rogers' knee and a dime on Little Walter's knee. And supposedly that was one of the things, uh-huh. allegedly, that inspired Little Walter. Go, no, 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 this is my thing. Always the harp player getting no respect. No respect. I'm <laughs> <billion>, no respect. <laughs> But again, I think, you know, the Duke and his his rise to stardom, you know, was a change in that, right? Again, you know, he was one of the great stars of the day. I mean, one thing I'm interested in, and again, maybe Scott or Kim, is he had 14 top 10 hits and uh, two number ones, my baby being the other one. So this was on the R&B charts, right? Not on the kind of pop charts. So who was hearing the R&B charts? Was this just kind of black charts with white people hearing at that stage? I think if, if white people were hearing it, it's because they were listening to black radio, which is a thing, right? That wasn't unheard of. I, I remember as a little kid listening with my little transistor radio just trying to listen to distant radio stations and finding weird things like this to listen to i sometimes wonder if at some point i had listened and not known uh, to some live broadcast because there were a lot of blues live broadcasts from clubs back in the 60s when various guys were out there doing it and i used to listen i was in chicago i used to listen to my little radio i'd go through the dial listen for weird things but i probably heard it and said eh, you know where are the beatles so then Little Walter proceeds with his very successful solo career for the next, well, through the 50s mainly, until at least getting onto the later 50s. And what's really interesting is that with Chess, they released singles, and they were all sort of double-sided singles. So they had one side where generally he was singing a song, and then they had a harmonica instrumental on the other side. And so, um, again, Music to Warriors, right, that um, harmonica instrumentals would be like the, the, the big hits of the days, guys. We were definitely born in the wrong era. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of that, you know, Juke was a number one hit. It was the biggest hit released, at least on the Billboard charts. Um, it was the biggest hit that the Chess label or the Chess Combine had ever released up to that point. It was a big deal for them. That's a really important point because it also put the Chess uh, label on solid financial footing, you know, made them a, a player in the national distribution record business. Yeah. I don't know if you can really overstate how important it was to Chess uh, as a label and obviously to Little Walter's career. You know, while Juke was still on the charts, they released the next Little Walter single. It also charted. So he had, I think, Sad Hours and Juke were on the, on the charts at the same time. It was like a rocket from there for the next two or three years. He, 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 every single that he released between 52 and I think 55, every single he released charted. Yeah, it's also important to note that he outsold Muddy Waters by a pretty large margin. Yeah. Like during, you know, during the 1950s. 
But interesting to say that Duke was actually recorded with Muddy's band, wasn't it? So they, they, they did that, didn't they? They would just sort of swap round the same band and, you know, play with Jimmy Rogers, play with Muddy Waters. So, so it is Muddy's band or that band on, on Duke, isn't it? It is, yeah. And that's because Little Walter did not have a band at that point. There's a story that goes around that Duke was recorded at, at the end of a Muddy Waters session in some spare time. That's not true. There was a session. It was called specifically to record Little Walter. Little Walter recorded his first single on that session. And in the time left over at the end of that session, Muddy cut one song that was then used uh, on one side of one of his later singles. But it was definitely a Little Walter session and, you know, called for the purposes of getting something out on him. Uh, He carried on recording with Muddy during this time, as I mentioned earlier on. So despite the fact that he'd left Muddy's band, Chess still wanted him to record with Muddy. So the first song he recorded after uh, he recorded Duke, he went back and recorded Baby Please Don't Go with Muddy, which is incidentally the first harmonica solo I ever learned. Obviously, I think that is a fairly important recording and a very influential recording for me, not just for me personally. It was also one of the first amplified harmonica recordings that I heard and very influential to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, 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 it's kind of like epitomized this whole this new era of post-war Chicago blues where it's taking, you know, a, a more traditional blues song slash theme and completely modernizing it with these new sounds and this new way of interplay yeah. and this whole new palette of colors of blues that they were playing with, which is just, I, I can only imagine, I can't because I wasn't there, but I can only imagine how amazing it sounded, you know, to people of that era to hear something like that for the first time, especially if you were already listening to blues and to hear this kind of new thing. So another one for you, um, Dennis, is that so the next, so the first time he recorded on chromatic and and in third position was uh, That's It. So um, obviously you're a great blues chromatic player yourself. So um, he went on to become a really great um, you know, chromatic player. I think Muddy Waters originally was a little bit reluctant, but he went on. And uh, so, what about his uh, what he did for the blues chromatic? Well, I mean, Little Walter was arguably, when we look at it now, the most directly influential blues hard player in history. And I think we can look at John Lee's Sonny Boy One as the most indirectly influential of all time. But what Little Walter did on chromatic was not really done in the blues context before him, at least in his own virtuosic way i mean it was just he along with the amplified approach that he had was kind of mind-blowing for that era and for that time and it just changed everything now i also will say because i mean i'm a huge george harmonica smith fan as well george uh not long after this also had a completely different approach also usually influential but walter was really going somewhere where no other player, no other blues player had gone before on the chromatic at that time. And in a very musical way, not just kind of 
inhaling and exhaling chords and hitting, uh, you know, so, some notes that, you know, you know, eventually most of these notes are going to fit. So I'm just going to kind of ramble on and play some notes. I mean, he knew his way around the instrument and was making music, not just blues on that chromatic harp. Yeah. So, so Kim, you obviously in your book, um, the harmonicas and the heavy breathers, you, you talk about a lot of the different harmonica players and the sort of great, you know, kind of harmonica bands. So do you know about that transition that he made when, you know, he was he the first, first sort of blues chromatic player and you know where it came from for him? Yeah, I don't really, I don't believe Walter was very influenced by the chromatic harmonica players like Larry Adler and Jerry Murad and people like that. Although it's interesting, Jerry Murad, you know, was also based in Chicago and also recorded his big hit, Peg of My Heart, in the same studios, Universal Studios, where uh, the chess label recorded in their first decade. I think that Walter got a hold of a chromatic. And again, just like he did with the diatonic, he heard possibilities in that instrument. And he just uh, he, he just went with it. I don't hear any oral evidence of him learning popular show tunes on the chromatic or doing any of the kind of prep work that Jerry Murad and those players did to build their technique. I think it it was pretty um, unique to him. Walter's track record as an innovator, you know, we've already talked about how he brought the horn sensibility to the harmonica and the, the jazz phrasing and the rhythmic approach. But he also was the first blues guy to delve into the chromatic and he brought third position diatonic playing to the game. I mean, he just, uh, it's just kind of staggering how, how innovative he was in such a short period of time. Yeah, so to, do we know about third position then? Because I've got my notes here that the first song he played in third position was on chromatic. So was, was third position diatonic being used by then as well? I, you know, I'd like to hear Dennis about this, but I believe that uh, Walter, uh, third position on the diatonic was also a, a Walter contribution. Off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember what year was like, uh, what was it? Please have mercy. But that I think was before the chromatic. Definitely, you know, something that Walter really took in a place that other players were not doing. And I think he really obviously made it a thing before anybody. Third position is very interesting, too, because one of the really interesting realities about the blues is it's kind of a it's a musical zone that's sort of halfway between major and minor. Third position is a position that's typically associated with songs in a minor key. Walter used uh, third position in major keys as well, and chromatic in major keys and not minor keys too. So I think that was another uh, really cool thing that he brought to the table was uh, even an increasing use of that minor feel on top of a major blues pattern. Right, right, for sure. Not truly major, not truly major, like for a regular blues anyway, but also not truly minor in that gray slash blue area, you know? You know, I would also like to mention that, you know, we're talking about like horn players and stuff. There was a harmonica player who was definitely imitating horn players on record before Little Walter, but it didn't have the impact it didn't have that amplified thing that just made it so big and so powerful and so present. Uh, this harmonica player was Rhythm Willie. Yep. He, I think, to my ear, sounds like he was imitating clarinet players specifically, like 
he'd been listening to some jazz clarinet guys, maybe Benny Goodman or something like that. But most people have never heard of Rhythm Willie. He's a deeply obscure character, and he just didn't have that much influence on, on the people he played around. It just didn't have the same sort of impact, even though, again, he was doing sort of a horn thing. But Little Walter just made it so much bigger and more more important within the music, you know, just that that sort of presence. I think a big part of that, obviously, is, you know, combining that whole amplified sound and the way that he manipulated the amplified sound. The little the Rhythm Willie stuff is incredible. Great harmonica stuff. The stuff that I'm familiar with or that I'm thinking of, at least, is, you know, that first position stuff. A lot of great first position on the bottom and the top of the harp. Sure. But yeah, when Walter amplified it and used his approach of manipulating the tones and the nuances and the sounds and textures with the amplified gear the mic and the amp and the way he was playing it blew everything else out of the water but also john lee sunny boy one you could hear his later recordings you could clearly tell that he was influenced by horn players of the day i mean it is very clear because his and i know that you know you all agree with me and you've all studied this stuff and listened to all this stuff as well. The latter half of his recorded output, you could really hear the difference in his approach from more low down gut bucket blues early on to stuff that was clearly influenced by jump blues and horn players of the day. Yeah. He was listening to, to Lewis Jordan for sure. He recorded one of Lewis Jordan's songs. Wonderful time. Yep. Uh, there's, a, there's a little section in the book that involved with Scott where they talks about how, you know, the band, Little Walter's band, when he was touring, they were much louder than, than bands with horns because they weren't amplified in the same way. So they had a lot more impact than, than the uh, the bands with horns. And he was kind of outshining them on the, on the humble, small harmonica with his with his amplifier. Yeah, and this goes back to the, the story about Ivory Joe Hunter's band. Another part of that story is that night when they took the stage, according to Dave, they blew Ivory Joe Hunter's band off the stage because they had, you know, and, and those guys had been laughing like, where's the rest of your band? It's like, no, this is the band. You wait and see. You know, two amplified guitars, an amplified harp, and Fred Bilo on drums. And I don't know that any anybody in Ivory Joe Hunter's band was even amplified in any way. According to Dave, they cut these guys. Oh. They they cut their heads. So <laughs> cut their heads, yeah. But he made some more classic recordings through the sort of early fifties. He did his own. He did Blues of the Feeling. Quarter Twelve was a was a, a both sided single. You're so fine. Let's out. He recorded the fantastic, uh, iconical Hoochie Coochie Man with Muddy Waters in 1954. I Just Want to Make Love You. I'm Ready was the first time he played chromatic with Muddy. Well, first time recorded uh, chromatic with Muddy. Uh, Last Night and Mellow Down Easy. So all these fantastic, amazing hits that we all, we all know and love from Little Walter. Uh, and so he had this great time um, sort of through the 50s. He was still, Scott, yeah, a big star at this stage. I was getting paid in Cadillacs from chess. and he, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, up until about 55, 56, I think he, he could almost do no wrong. His entire band had changed by 56, um, but he was still out there touring. You know, one of the reasons, and, and I really wasn't aware of this when I started researching Little Walter, but one of the reasons that, that he... I think he was sort of more successful on the charts 
than some of his contemporaries is that he was on the road all the time. Muddy Waters didn't tour all that much. Holland Wolf didn't tour all that much. Um, Rice Miller, you know, Sonny Boy 2, he wasn't like a big touring guy. Little Walter was out on the road all the time. So he was spreading the gospel of, of his music to people. And even today, Dennis, you know this. If you go out and play, that's how you sell records, right? So, yep, yep. I, I don't want to backtrack too much, but also kind of back to the you know impact of Juke. Uh, Billy Boy uh, had some very interesting comments about how that record didn't only just change the blues scene in Chicago uh, in terms of the impact on musicians. It literally changed the blues club scene. And he said that Juke attracted a whole new wave of younger people to uh, the blues, you know, especially younger women, according to Billy Boy. And he said it, it just... Um, uh, just changed the entire blues scene in Chicago with a healthy infusion of you know younger listeners and appreciators. Yeah, there's a great photo that I know you guys have have seen. It's Little Walter in a record store doing uh, an appearance, and he is surrounded by young women. There are no men. Other, I think the record store owner and maybe Leonard Chess is in, uh, is in the photo with Walter, and there, there's like ten or twelve young women all just staring at him adoringly so you know he was kind of a rock star in a in a way that people like muddy just never were right that may have been the last time that that happened actually to a blues artist <laughs> <laughs> i hear that happens to you all the time dennis <laughs> <laughs> so i mean so he's a pretty boy as well right certainly when he's younger and we'll get on to his later years he sort of got lots of scars and he wasn't so pretty but he was he was a pretty boy as well as um when he was a youngster attracting and uh, certainly liked the women didn't he yeah, by all accounts, he never passed up an opportunity. Uh, and you mentioned photos there, so I've got to mention that Bob Corator. I'm sure you guys know he's got a he's got a great website where he's got lots of kind of uh, photos of lots of different artists, and there's a great page with Little Walter with lots of photos uh, of him on there. So I'll put a link onto the podcast page, and I think the photo you mentioned's on there as well. I know I know the one you're talking about. I think yes, yeah, it's a great page. If you haven't seen it yourself, check it out. Some really good photos from um, from Bob on there. So in 1955, he had his second number one, which was My Babe, which was um, sort of Willie Dixon tune that he recorded. Probably a bit more poppy, right, Scott? You know, probably appealing more to the sort of mass audience that he'd sort of attracted by this stage. He's not playing, well, he obviously does a, a kind of two breaks on the harmonica, I think, doesn't he? But it's, it's got almost more of vocal, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know, there's an interesting sort of, I don't know, I guess you'd call this a, a coincidence maybe, but My Babe is basically the gospel number, This Train, with secular lyrics. When Little Walter went into the studio, the day that he recorded My Babe, Ray Charles's version of I've Got a Woman, which is based on a gospel song and was somewhat controversial at the time because I've Got a Woman was a huge hit, but people were sort of offended by the fact that it was obviously gospel the music backing was sort of based on gospel, and it was actually based on a, on a gospel record that had been famous. I can't recall the name, but I think it was, I do recall the name. It's called It Must Be Jesus. Ray Charles had taken that song, turned it into I've Got a Woman. When that song was number one on the charts, Little Walter went into the studio to record his gospel to secular song, My Babe. 
And it was interesting reading that he actually, Ray Charles played saxophone with Little Walter, didn't he? He did. He was on a tour as an opening act for Little Walter's band in the early 50s. I think it might have been around 53, 54. And he was doing a solo piano set to open for Little Walter on the road. And at some point, and this is another story that came from Dave Myers, he said one day they were they were playing their set and they suddenly heard a saxophone and they looked and Ray Charles had his saxophone and was playing along with Little Walter. So he said for the rest of that tour, that's what they did. Wow. Whoa. And so we're getting on to a bit of a turning point for Little Walter. So he, he he was getting in trouble. You know, he never turned down the women. He also never turned down a fight by the sounds of things as well, Scott Wright. So, and then he got shot in the leg in 1958. And this was this kind of start of a bit of a downward spiral for him. And he shortly sort of broke the le- his leg as well shortly after when he slipped on the ice. So this had an impact on him, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think the slide downward had begun a little bit earlier. I think once the chest started exploding, experiencing lots of success with Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley, guys like Little Walter weren't getting quite as much attention anymore from the label. They were promoting the stuff that was, you know, the stuff that was selling well. And Little Walter's stuff had stopped selling quite as well at the time when things like Maybelline and, and you know, Bo Diddley had hit the market around 55, 56. So, you know, he it was around that time that he started, his band started having more sort of regular turnover. People were kind of coming and going more. He was recording a little bit less frequently. And then, yeah, he had these, these problems in the later, or towards the end of the 50s. He had some health issues and, you know, like you say, he, 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 hurt his leg and he got shot and gigs weren't coming as as frequently as they used to and it's really that era that i think started like take the wind out of his sails it seems like he became less engaged in his music his stuff just wasn't quite as exciting although i have to say just about everything little walter ever recorded i think is interesting on some level because it's unlike on on some level everything else he ever recorded like he always was was continually developing new things some people didn't like those new things as much as the old things but you know he he continued to sort of navigate the waters you know he wasn't just doing the same thing over and over i think all the chess blues acts were victim to that transition in the business yeah when they were when they were big in the early 50s and selling all those records they were still selling primarily to black record buyers but then in 55 56 with Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley, uh, Leonard Chess tapped into the white record buying audience, which was infinitely larger than the the black record buyer buyer uh, contingent. So um, it was not you know a big surprise that he began to put all his energy into those kinds of acts and and Muddy and uh, Rice Miller and all those other chess acts also suffered in the same way right many of them luckily though lived long enough to come out into the the blues revival in the 60s where they they as musicians finally made contact with live campus audiences and got a new lease on life but walter just missed that transition or or, or was unable to really muster the resources to participate in it but just think like Rolling, the Rolling Stones put out that blues album a couple of years ago, and I think there are, what, two little Walter songs on there? Right. Like, just imagine the money that Walter would have made if he'd have lived another 15 or 20 years. 
yeah yeah, sure. yeah. definitely so as you say this sort of the, the the advent of r&b sort of started putting paid to the blues i think little walter started drinking so you know he was on a bit of a downward spiral, but still releasing some great songs as you mentioned there scott so key to the highway was like these last top 10 hit Interestingly, he recorded Crawling King Snake, the only time he recorded on a tremolo harmonica. So uh, I didn't know that until I read the book, Scott. <laughs> I had to check that. Yeah. And then he, so he made a few, you know, a few singles and in the late sort of 50s, 1959, his last session with Chess, um, 1963, recorded Dead Presidents, that didn't short. So, and then, then we touched on the, the, the sort of the, the blues boom and the, the sort of UK, um, you know, sort of blues explosion and that sort of putting the, you know, the attention back on the, um, the American blues artists and that sort of that revival yeah so so then little walter went over to to the uk in 64 for his first tour didn't have a great time over there scott by the sounds not not great backing bands and they weren't very sympathetic to his music and he was he was drinking a lot right at this stage yeah that's that's um what i've heard and read i think it was uh, not a really great idea for him to to travel alone and hope that he'd be able to find suitable backing my understanding is that every venue i don't know he did 20 shows or something in the uk and every venue that he played he had a different band backing him and some of those bands in 1964 had some idea of what he did but based on the reviews that i've read and the and the things that i've heard about it uh, many of the bands just weren't really suitable they they were unable to follow him and he's a guy who kind of needed somebody who could who could support him and so he came away from that pretty dispirited from what i hear as you can imagine and you know just a side note and a side thought really you know when, when we're through this whole conversation talking about when he was younger and and, and coming up recording and how people thought he was you know playing too fast and you hear stories about you know he was just kind of always with ideas and a little annoying sometimes with all his ideas and energy and all that stuff you know if in a different world where maybe he was not held back so much not even by his own behavior but just by in different times under different circumstances with more freedom to do what he wanted he had that forward thinking mentality and energy and persona he wanted to be more energetic and more exciting than like what Muddy was doing. Of course, you know, all due respect to Muddy. And of course, we love that stuff. And I love Muddy. But he he had a different mindset, as we kind of touched upon. Yeah. More probably along the lines of what Bo Diddley was doing and what Chuck Berry was doing in his own way. But because he, he was lumped in with that more older school, should we say, blues the blues artist and the blues roster, I think he, you know, it's kind of, he got a bum deal because of that just throughout this whole transition because he really was more forward thinking and playing more like the newer generation. Billy Boy told me about, you know, again, this is a guy who saw Walter hundreds of times in the clubs and there would be whole sets where Walter would just play harp 
Yeah. Like, you know, according to Billy Boy, he wasn't really that keen about singing. And uh, but he really, you know, loved to play that harp. And he uh, he would be playing. He would be riffing on songs that he heard like a half an hour before on the jukebox in the club. And, uh, you know, Night Train, they would do, you know, songs like that just off the cuff on the bandstand. And he would blow for like a, a solid hour just playing harp. <laughs> and it's interesting to think about, like, the difference between Walter on record and Walter in the clubs, right? Yeah. Like what we're hearing on record is Leonard Chess's three and a half minutes or three minutes of Walter playing the blues. And it sound, it seems to me from, you know, talking to Billy Boy and others that he was much more varied, you know, on the bandstand. Well, I was going to make that exact point, Kim, because that comes across really strongly that he, his live gigs were very different than, than his recorded output, certainly with Muddy, obviously, but even his own stuff, because it was very kind of three minutes, as you say, in the chess studios. But he was massively improvising, doing big long solos. It's such a crying shame we don't have any recordings from that time. Imagine it now, right? Everyone's got their phones. We'd hear all sorts, but it's like there isn't any live recordings from him in the 50s, is there? No, not that I know of. You know, I keep hoping that, you know, this Muddy Waters thing that came out last year or a couple of years ago, this recording of Muddy Live in 1954, I keep hoping something like that will will pop up, that somebody thought it was worth recording one of his radio broadcasts or something. Mm. But yeah, none of that has appeared yet. The earliest live recording of Little Walter, I think, is there's a bit of audio very poorly recorded audio from that 1964 tour in the uk that a guy brought a little portable recorder and recorded i think three songs but it's it's really distorted the band isn't that great walter sounds great but it's so distorted and so overdriven that it's like not something you could ever release but other than that yeah the then the next live recordings were just from 67 yeah. when he did the the american folk blues festival tour and, and got recorded a few times and by the way that stuff gets you know rightly i think in at some level it gets criticized for not really being up to little walter's level but i really feel like his playing was pretty good on that and that most of the the problems are are with the backing and not so much with the with walter's part i mean he just had to dumb his thing down to where he could play with people who didn't know what he was doing totally agreed i think so too i remember when i first saw that video of you know the where he does this shuffle right on an e-harp i think acoustic right and i'm just like i was so disappointed you know that there's no amp in there yeah but then actually later i was watching it and i was like well this is just completely brilliant especially if you're a harmonica player you have walter's just you know naked acoustic sound uh with no accoutrements nothing in the way no amplification no reverb if you want to you know unravel the mystery of how he played how he played uh it's a perfect uh teaching source for you you know you get his unadorned uh, acoustic sound right out there and it's just uh, he plays great i agree i was just gonna say that one in particular is really i think a standout and you can kind of hear you know for any of us like i'm sure all of us here have studied walter's recordings especially the in instrumental stuff you can hear when you listen to that 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 was like the same guy the same mentality the same approach the same headspace He's in the same zone. You can imagine what that sounded like just if you, you know, if you added a cool mic and amplifier and some studio reverb to his sound. It sounds like those classic Walter recordings. And another bass player. <laughs> Different band, really. But you know what I mean. You can really hear that. I was saying that song's Walter's Jump, isn't it, I think? Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, I have to brag a little bit here. When that video was first discovered, that video was unknown until about 20 years ago. And the guy who discovered it had worked with the American Folk Blues Festival people during the time that they were doing those shows. And he knew that there were copies of the video that had been made. I don't know how he did it, but he tracked down a copy in a vault at some you know remote TV station somewhere. And that's that video. That's the little Walter video where he does that, that Walter's jump thing. And the guy said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release this on a DVD. What's the name of this song? I said, that's an improvised instrumental. It doesn't really have a name, but if you want to call it something, I would call it Walter's Jump. And that's what it is. Ah, cool, you named it. Well done, Scott. Yeah. Oh, great. So uh, just again, running through the last part of his career. So his last uh, his last session as a leader um, at chess was um, 1966 with Chicken Shack. You mentioned earlier on, I think, Scott, about when you can hear him in the studio. And there's a fantastic album, which is called The Complete Chess Masters, 1950 to 1967. Probably the best album because you get all these different takes that he made, like different versions. Like, for example, he did various takes of Off the Wall, and can either like, which is called Fast Boogie, and you can hear like the different takes of Off the Wall, and you can hear him talking in the studio. So it's really essential listening to that album. Great album. I think it won an award, didn't it, of some sort? It did. It won a Grammy. Yeah. You're talking about the the Little Walter box set that came out in 2009? It, it is that one. It's the one when he's talking in the studio and stuff. The one I've got it called on Spotify is the Complete Chess Masters 1956. Yeah. But yeah, it's, that's, that's the one, yeah. It won a Grammy for the best historical reissue, which I, I co-produced that album. Ah, did you now? Fantastic. And it's great to hear him in the studio and hear him talking like saying he's oh, frustrated man. about not being heard and not being able to use his amp. It's, it's amazing to be able to hear him in there, yeah. Yes, no. Well, let me frustrate you by even more by saying that there was a lot more of that stuff that I could not persuade the record company to include. There was a lot more in between the song stuff. And it's like, ah, we have little Walter swearing enough, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Could you ever get enough of that? I mean, come on. No, I, I, yeah. I was able to listen to just about everything that they have in the vault. As far as I know, actually, I should say, I listened to everything. They told me that I listened to everything I have in the vault. I don't know if there's more or not. There's some confusion there because there was a fire and some tapes got burned up and I don't know what's what. But anyway, I listened to a lot of the session tapes and there is one thing that has not been released it's an alternate take of a previously unissued thing that made it onto the box set. It's the instrumental version of one of these mornings. There is a second instrumental version of one of these mornings that's not quite as good. I really did push for it to be included to make the set complete, but I was unsuccessful. Great. Well, it's, it's a great album. Again, definitely recommended listening. Yeah. Uh, so um, he did another UK tour in 67, again, sort of mixed. I think there's some high points. And the, there's also talking about live recordings. There is a, there is a bootleg record of him playing in, with Sam Lay in uh, 1967 from Pepper's Lounge. Yeah, that's not actually Peppers. That that was a, that bootleg 
all of the credits are wrong. Mm-hmm. Almost everything on there is wrong. But there are three songs with Little Walter playing with Sam Lay. Yeah. And yeah, that stuff also, I think, really good. Um, he's playing with Lewis Myers and Eddie Taylor on guitars, Sam Lay on drums. How yeah. bad could it be? Um, and I, I think he plays he plays beautifully on that, really powerful stuff. And he's backing Sam Lay, so he doesn't even have to think about the vocals. So it's I, I love that stuff. And I think it's really evidence that uh, that sort of refutes the idea that he had lost it by the 60s. I think I think that's right. Like um, Charlie Musselwhite told me that uh, he felt that Walter was really playing great in 1968. Like he was really coming on strong. And actually, Charlie attributed that to uh, the Black Power uh, movement at the time, that uh, Walter was seemingly taking more pride in his himself and his his contributions but uh charlie told me that walter was just was really playing great and was kind of on a, on the upswing mm. and i've heard a story uh, from willie smith who was muddy's drummer that muddy was preparing to hire little walter back into his band at the time of walter's death wow so yeah like you say sadly in 1968, February the 15th, he died in uh, what a street fire, and there's this kind of different accounts of what happened, but basically he got hit on the head, and then he, he went home and sort of was found dead the next morning, yeah. Yeah, he, he went to a girlfriend's house, went to bed, and just never woke up. And it was like 20 years from when uh, John Lee Williamson died under similar circumstances, too. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And like you, like you said earlier on, I think Kim, that you know he really sort of missed out on the whole blues revival, right? You know he would have, he would have definitely had a second win. We'd have got more recordings out of him. So it's an absolute tragedy, obviously, for him, but for the harmonica community too. Well, later on, I think he was inducted into the the Blues Hall of Fame, and then later in two thousand eight into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So he was, I think, the first person or the only person to be inducted into both. Yeah, and I, I think so. But yes, he, he was inducted into the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame into a category that no longer exists. I think it was kind of a mistake, actually. They inducted him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the Sideman category, which completely overlooks the fact that he had bigger hits than anybody he ever played for as a Sideman. They have since, and maybe it was because of this one, they've eliminated the Sideman category. And they just... Really? Yeah, they call it something else now. They just call it historic contributors category or something like that. I remember when this happened, and of course, I think it was around the same time Cadillac Records came out. It was like, there's all these things now revolving around yeah, Walter. Yeah. My record was coming, I think, around the same time, too. And I kind of remember having unpopular opinion that I, I appreciated that he was in the sideman category because when you think about it, I mean, he was a star in his own right and he always was and always will be very influential and a superstar. However, I think what he contributed as a sideman, not just because it was on harmonica, but taking into light that it was on harmonica, what he did changed everything the way harmonica has been played in the band ever since him. I mean, it was a huge contribution when you think about it. I would not argue with it. Not taking away his his own stardom and his under his own name and how what a success he was and how influential he was and what a great artist he was, but he really did completely change how harmonica was played in in the modern era ever since his era 
in a band setting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that sums up nicely his influence, Dennis. So, yeah, you cover that nicely. So, before we get on to talking about the age-old question of which gear he used, I'm going to ask you um, the very difficult question of your favourite uh, Little Walter song. So, um, you can maybe choose two because it's going to be difficult. So, uh, I'll go first to give you time to think. I'm going to go for Louisiana Blues, which I just adore. And then uh, it's got to be the uh, Mellow Down Easy for me. So um, he wants to go next. Well, I'd better go next before uh, the, the other guys claim the, the other stuff. Yeah. I really love Blue Midnight. I think that's a, that's just a, my favorite, you know, slow blues instrumental. Again, I'm partial to instrumentals when it comes to Walter, although I love his singing too. But uh, Backtrack is also a favorite of mine. I think that's a great up-tempo number that he did. That is a great one, Kim. I've been I've been listening to lots of Little Walter before this interview, and that one really stood out to me. And that's quite a late one as well. He he did that in um, you know, the sort of late fifties, I think. So a testament to the fact that he was still playing well then. Let me tell you a very quick story about that song. That was recorded at the very end of a session where he had been directed to play acoustic through the whole session. I think it's the Everything's Gonna Be All Right session. And throughout that, I listened to the session tape, was very, very lucky to be able to get access to some of this stuff uh, through, the, through a guy named Andy McKay, who was then uh, running the, the chess reissue program for Universal Music. And um, so I got to listen to a lot of these tapes. And on that one, throughout that entire session, little Walter is complaining, I got it. Where's my mic? I got to use my mic. I can't get my sound without my mic. And he, he, in between songs, he would pick it up and play like two notes. And then, and they're like, no, 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 we're going to record acoustic. At the end of that session, he said, let me, re- let me record something with the mic. Okay. They hit record. Backtrack came out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like really powerful it's like this is what the amplified thing is supposed to sound like this is why i want to do this (laughs) you can't choose that song scott um kim's already had it i cannot choose that song so you have to go for two more I really, really like Roller Coaster. I think Roller Coaster is Little Walter at his freest. I get the impression listening to it that you're just listening to him just improvise off the top of his head, just whatever he's thinking. And it just comes out as this this crazy patchwork of rhythms and melodies and ideas that just, it's just like tumbling out of him. So I really, really like Roller Coaster a lot. Mm-hmm. Like Kim, I also really, really like his instrumentals quite a bit. So I would say maybe That's It. Because I think the intro to That's It, that's the best intro to any blues harmonica song ever. The first note is just like, it just is devastating. And then the rest of it's great. And he switches to chromatic for a, for a chorus. Absolutely. First time, yeah. of course, I'm playing for a position. So, Dennis? Uh, no question. My first one is Sad Hours. Completely mm-hmm. changed my life. And, and I would say for anybody listening who's unfamiliar, maybe hasn't listened to that in a while, 
what Walter does on Sad Hours, I think, is the most important amplified harmonica recording of all time. The way he shapes the sounds and textures and tone of what he's doing there. Not only, you know, it was new, kind of new at the time, but even this day when you listen to it, it's still so powerful. That's my favorite. That's the first Walter song I learned and still my favorite to this day. I was going to choose Roller Coaster for the same reasons that Scott mentioned, but I guess I'll, I'll have to go with like a Fast Boogie, which I think is not Last Boogie, mm-hmm. Fast Boogie. And the stuff he does in Fast Boogie, especially cool stuff around the turnaround, doing things that's, you know, either fitting a 2-5 chord change or just stuff that's more horn-like in his melodic approach was really, you know, again, not only was it new and pioneering and different for the time, it's still... When you listen to blues players now, it's still new, pioneering, and different for modern day. All amazing songs. Interesting, you all chose instrumentals, where I, it was I didn't, but I, of course I love the instrumentals too. But uh, I'm the only one to choose a, a song with Muddy Waters too. Interestingly, um, but I love those cuts with Muddy. Well, I think the reality is that you know I mean, we between us we picked eight tunes, and there's just there are dozens more we could have easily have chosen. I mean, the thing that's really remarkable about Walter is that. You know, as Dennis said, he he wrote the book on how to play harp, how to play backup harp in a band. Like his his stuff with Muddy and with Jimmy Rogers is just unbelievable. But then to go on and have his own solo career in a completely different direction, uh, and to and to be the top selling chess artist of the fifties, I mean that that's an incredible career for that. You know, we're, what are we talking like six years maybe? just unbelievable yeah absolutely so we'll move on now to talk about the last section and about gear so there's much um discussion and debate we've already touched on the question of gear uh with little walter first of all let's just talk about harmonicas before we get into the whole amp thing so i think he pretty much played marine bands right that's what all there was back then and um and then he played um super 64 um 16 hole chromatic horner at the time any uh, any differences from those two well i mean marine band wasn't really the only thing but i think it was the the uh, cl- the clear choice that he played and not so much a super 64 but i guess it was the 16 hole 280 honer model i guess it would be back then right i i've seen pictures of him with both of those so i, I don't know yeah. which you know in what order they he used them but yeah i don't think that his harmonicas were anything special he did experiment a little bit he played the Koch harmonica on one song mm-hmm. he played the tremolo harmonica on one song occasionally played i think is there a song where he's playing one of those big marine bands i i don't know but anyway he it's like he he kind of played around a little bit but you know the marine band was the standard and i think that was his standard too and and then whatever good you know 16 hole chromatic whichever one he you know wasn't broken i guess did he just play 16 hole and he did not known to play 12 it sounds like he's always playing 16 hole isn't it i think so because he he liked to get down into those low notes yeah honestly i've never done the study to see which are you know which stuff might not be the 16 hole but in the several pictures of him with a chromatic i think he's He's always playing a 16-hole. And he didn't use a harmonica customizer, as far as we know. I don't think that existed no. then. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it existed. But also, I mean, the, the harps were made differently back then. Yeah. Yeah, and tuned a little bit differently, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
And so talking about his embouchure, so from, uh, from what I understand, he's mainly tongue blocking, he, but he also played quite a bit of you blocked as well, is this right? Hmm, that's a good question. I thought that in order to play Chicago blues, you needed to tongue block all the time. But there's stuff that little Walter plays that you can't really play when tongue blocking, specifically things that are fast staccato. And I think that's, he did that with like a, a pucker thing. Sure. I think he, he puckered more than he probably gets credit for. I've had this conversation with, with younger harmonica players a few times. What's better? You know, which one do you use? Which one did little Walter use? Which one did, you know, big Walter use? I don't think those guys thought about it in those terms. Like which embouchure should I play this passage with? I think it was like whatever shape I have to make my mouth into to make this sound come out. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not sure they really thought about it all that much beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I would I would pretty much agree with you. I think he's tongue blocking most of what he did, but there's clearly examples of him. You know, Roller Coaster, one of the thing I think one of the clearest examples where you can hear he is not tongue blocking some passages where he's quickly doing some tongue articulations. Yeah, I mean, you could hear if 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 you're a schooled player somewhat and you have you know some arsenal of technique under your belt, so to speak. You can hear he is tongue blocking a good portion of what he is doing, uh, but not everything. Right. You know, did John Lee uh, Williamson tongue block? Yeah, he did. Sure. Um, but I, I think he also he he puckered and tongue blocked and did whatever he could. You know, because obviously he plays some some big chords and things. I, I don't get the impression that the old timers thought about it as much mm-hmm. as us latter day guys do. I think the way to summarize it is that. I mean, the harmonica was built to be played tongue block. When I bought my first harmonica in 68 or whatever, it had a little booklet inside the box and it showed you how to tongue block. And I just thought, well, this is like grandpa style or something. This is not what's happening. And of course, I was, you know, being exposed to Paul Butterfield and so forth. So, I mean, up until, you know, Butterfield was really the, the switch over to the ascension of the first players you know versus tongue block uh butterfield played octaves with his tongue but was essentially a pucker player but up until then it's really like everybody had that solid foundation of tongue block yeah both in the like country music and the rural style as well as the urban blue style it's fundamentally a tongue block style but dennis and scott are right in that they're i'm an old trumpet player and there are definitely some double and triple tonguing things that Walter and other guys do that are really just are not feasible with a pure tongue blocked approach. So, right. But I think it's also the understanding that, you know, it's not necessarily one or the other with most of these players. I don't think all, but with most of these players, these great masters that we think of, especially in Chicago blues, they're utilizing both. And, you know, I think for most of the great masters we look up, it, it, a good portion of it is more tongue blocked, but they're definitely utilizing both. Yep. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So let's get on to the, uh, the thorny topic of uh, amplification and, and microphone. So it seems to be the consensus is that he pretty much used what was available. And what was available, certainly in the early days, was the sort of PA systems that were, that were just in the venues he was in. And that they sort of, I read in the book, Scott, that they had sort of inputs for crystal mics. So they sort of, you know, is that what he was using early on, certainly? Yeah, I asked Jimmy Lee Robinson about this on numerous occasions, and he all, he was very consistent. He, I, I would say, what kind of amp did little Walter use in clubs? And Jimmy Lee said... Little Walter did not bring an amp to clubs. He used whatever was in the club 
you know, he used the PA that was there that people sang into. So it wasn't like there was a separate harp. There was a separate microphone for the harp and one microphone for the vocals. It's like, here's the sound system. Here's the microphone. Here's the PA system. Uh, and a- according to Jimmy Lee, little Walter never brought an amp to Chicago club gigs. He just used whatever PA was in the club. But interestingly, then he's using a he's using an acoustic mic then when he's doing that. So was he cupping at to get that sound if he was using acoustic? Yeah, well, the microphones in the clubs oftentimes were like in a static JT30 yeah. or a, you know something along those lines. And they were singing through those as well, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So he would just sing through it, and then when he had to blow his harp, he would just cup his mic to it or cup his harp so, to it. So that's really interesting because that almost suggests that we all play through JT30s and Green Bullets because they just happened to use them for vocals back then. I think that's absolutely the that is absolutely the case. That is, it was a an inexpensive microphone. They were plentiful. They could be found in any you know hardware store, and it's what PA systems used. So and they were cheap. Right. And, but it also, I think even more importantly, it, there's this happy, beautiful accident that happened that when a great harmonica player with great tone and technique cupped one of these bullet microphones into a cool tube PA system or tube amp, you got what little Walter got mm-hmm. out of it. Right. You know, duplicate it really with the stuff that's made nowadays. I mean, you know, imagine what a world that would be if I could show up to a gig. Oh, yeah, we have some new in a box, a static JT30 crystal mics and a Masco PA head. Do you right. mind playing through that? I mean, the other advantage to the JT30 biscuit mic types is the broad face. So you can you can lay a good portion of the Marine Band real estate across the front of that uh, microphone and get a, you know, kind of the broad spectrum. Totally. Yeah. You made an interesting point there, Dennis. So these PAs, they were tube PAs, were they? Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. Well, at the time, I mean, it just happens to be a happy accent that this stuff can sound incredible, you know, with all these overtones and textural and tonal nuances that you can't get with what, you know, with modern day technology and gear. You know, it's a totally different type yeah, of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, solid state transistor amps didn't exist in the 50s. That was that sort of an early 60s innovation. So any tube amplifier, you know, whether it was a a PA system or some sort of guitar amp or whatever, um, there just wasn't that much difference between them back in the early days. So, so, so that's his sort of live sound. I think we're pretty established that he didn't have one amp that he lugged around with him in his Cadillac. But what about when he's in the studio? He was using small amps to record in the studio, wasn't there? Have we any idea what he was using for those um, you know, great recordings we've talked about? Yeah, that is the great mystery. The only thing I can really tell, and it's just based on my own observations, is that if you listen to Little Walter's sessions in chronological order through the 50s, his amplified tone is different on every single session. Exactly. Yep. There are no two that sound exactly the same. The rocker session doesn't sound like the off-the-wall session, et cetera, et cetera. So my best guess is that whatever his current amp that he had was the one that he brought to the studio. But, you know, in this little Walter interview that was published in Living Blues magazine in one of the early issues, he talks about having an amplifier that he disliked the sound of so much. And it got, you know, throughout the night, it got quieter and quieter. So after the gig, as they were driving home, they stopped at a bridge and threw it off the bridge into the river. (laughs) Yeah. The point being that he was not 
married to any specific amplifier. Although I will tell you something. I did a gig with Dave Myers once. I have a Masco PA system, an early 50s Masco PA that, I, that I've had for a very long time. And I decided it was a kind of gig. It was just me and Dave, so I didn't need some high-powered things. So I brought that amplifier to the gig, a little Masco PA, like a suitcase. And when Dave saw it, he goes, he, his eyes kind of narrow, and he looks at me, and he looks at the amp, and he looks at me, and he looks at the amp. He goes, where did you get that? <laughs> and I said, oh, that's just my, my PA system. He goes, oh, okay. And I said, why? He goes, nothing, just curious. But I think I might have been onto something there because he clearly had some sort of, he sort of recognized it and there was some sort of thing in his head like, hmm. Right. You know, right. So I, I don't know. I will say that when I asked Dave what kind of amps Little Walter played, he said he played a bunch of different amps, but the only one he remembered the name of was a Macon. Huh. And since there is no Macon amp that I've been able to find, I think Dave might have been mistaking it for a Masco. Sure. But that's just, that's a leap on my part. I, I'm not sure that that's the case, but you know. I don't think it's that far of a leap, though. I mean, I would no, make no. the same assumption. And I'm curious, maybe you, Scott, and, or Kim have other comments about this, but I also remember talking. I had uh, the experience on a number of occasions to open up and, and do some gigs with Snooky Pryor when I was younger and James Cotton and trying to pick their brains about gear, you know, because I had a, a fascination with this stuff from early on. And, you know, most of them, for the most time, when I hear people talk, especially other harp players that I know, they're like, ah, you know, they don't care about what they play because they just sound like them no matter what. And of course, that's true because they're great players, pioneering players that sound awesome with great tone and technique. But on more than one occasion, I've had Snooky play through my gear or setting up for, for a gig you know, and then, uh, you know, I offered one particular time I had a Gibson BR1 amp, kind of top of the line Gibson with a 12 inch speaker, you know, late 40s, I guess it was early 50s. Field coil speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he plugged into and played that, you know, at Soundcheck, his eyes lit up in a way that well, I was just like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's something that you don't forget. And I remember James Cotton also playing through a friend of mine's amp at one time, and, and he kind of you know, he played like one chord or one note and he kind of looked at the guy and nodded with this big smile. And, you know, I'm sure they were happy to play through anything and they sounded like themselves. But it was nice to see these pioneering players. They also heard something in the gear in particular gear that they really liked. And the other side of this is when people talk about the Chicago blues tone, I think it's such a misconception because there is no one chicago blues tone that cotton or or especially little walter that we know of had it was just a bunch of different tones and sounds from the different gear yeah. of the scott i have a question for you as somebody who's probably listened to more little walter master tapes than any other living human being i've always been really curious about the augmentation of walter's amplified sound in the studio those classic records were made at universal studios in chicago one of the reasons the chess records sound so great compared to like records maybe on Kent and Modern and some of those labels is that they used the best studio in the Midwest, which was Universal Studios. And Bill Putnam, the engineer there who engineered personally a lot of those chess sessions, ended up moving to L.A. and building the Capitol Records recording studios and doing all of Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole stuff. So there are instances on some of those Walter recordings where certain notes will like shoot out at you uh, kind of almost out of the frame and in a way that's not t you know obviously it's not just him altering his dynamics and his volume 
So I, I just I wonder if you have any uh, insight as to how they handled him at the board level, whether they was that where the reverb and the tremolo and the, some of those, you know, really like zooming kind of notes, you know, happened or I, I just I've always been curious about that. I have spent a little bit of time in recording studios, too. And so I have a little bit of I have I'm interested in all that stuff, too. You know, like, how did they get these sounds? And there are some little Walter recordings. I think Juke is one of them, actually, where you can kind of hear the engineer fiddling around with the there's a there's a slapback tape delay on that. And you can kind of hear him dialing it in throughout the song. Like, it's not right there at the beginning. And then you can kind of hear it starting to get louder. And at some point, then it sort of establishes itself. When Little Walter was interviewed, he was asked how the guy who interviewed him said, how do you get that sound? There's a sound, I think it's in Blue Lights, where it's sort of like this overdriven echo feedback weird (laughs) sort of thing. You know what I'm talking about, right? How do you get that sound? And Walter says, I don't know. He's doing it with his hand, indicating that the recording engineer is doing something on the board that is making that happen. Universal did use a tape loop for some tape delay on some of those things. You know, this is sort of an interesting thing that I learned quite a long time ago about the little Walter recordings and really just the chess recordings in general. The recording engineer Malcolm Chisholm, who worked for chess when chess had their own studio, had begun his career at Universal. He was like an intern and a trainee at Universal. And he said his first job there was building direct boxes using these big transformers. And what these direct boxes would do would allow you to plug, take the output from a speaker and turn it into a direct signal. Mm-hmm. So, or I shouldn't say the output from the speaker, the output to the speaker. So it had alligator clips that clipped onto the speaker leads. And then it, so it turned the output of the amplifier into a direct signal. So you get all of the tube saturation and all that sound, but it's direct. In other words, you're not hearing it through a microphone. You're not hearing any of the room sound. And that's a sound that really nobody has been able to recreate. A lot of people go in the studio and they want to record this big little Walter harmonica sound. And they put a mic at one end of a hallway and a speaker at the other end. And you get this big sort of echoey sound, which is missing the direct part. And it's the direct part mixed with the room sound that really is the essence of the Little Walter studio sound on a lot of those early recordings. And Malcolm Chisholm said, why would we record a $12 speaker? Let's just take the output of the amplifier. That was the logic. They thought that like recording it off the speaker was downgrading the signal that was being created. Of course, Universal Studios is one of the greatest studios in the world as well, right? And they had the great technicians. So that obviously big contribution to the amazing sound he's getting on those records. Absolutely. So thanks so much for joining me, Scott, Kim, and Dennis, to talk about uh, the great little Walter on the 100th episode of the podcast. Thanks very much. Neil, it was a real pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on. All right. Thank you very much, Neil. I I could talk about little Walter all day, as you can tell. So uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much. Really appreciate being here, especially with my two friends, Scott and Kim, who I know share this absolute adoration of little water once again thanks to zydel for sponsoring the podcast be sure to check out the great range of harmonicas and products at www.zydel1847.com or on facebook or instagram at zydel harmonicas 
Thanks to Scott, Kim and Dennis for joining me today. Also thanks to Brian Shoemaker and Rob Sawyer for their donations to the podcast. Remember you can find most of the full songs for the track clips used in the episode today on the Spotify playlist called Happy Hour Harmonica Playlist. The link is on the podcast page. So that's 100 episodes. Wow, what an honour it has been to speak to many of my harmonica heroes, to speak with players from around the world and discuss the range of different styles they play. I've learnt so much from every person I've interviewed. I hope you have too. But it doesn't stop there. I'll be back in the new year with another episode. Hope you can join me then. Thanks for listening. If you want a more in-depth look at Little Walter's life, then I heartily recommend the book we discussed in the episode, Blues with a Feeling, The Little Walter Story. Also check out Kim's two books too. We'll sign off with another masterclass from the undisputed king of the blues harmonica. This is the title track released on the compilation album shortly after his death, Hate to See You Go. Back home.